Rarely has a psychiatric illness provoked such discussion as social anxiety disorder. Are we pathologizing shyness? Welcome to our special segment on psychiatry. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. An expert on the treatment of anxiety and depression, Dr. Werenberg also has extensive training and expertise in the neurobiology of psychological disorders. She is co-founder of the Reflex Delay Syndrome Research and Training Institutes, founded to promote research and treatment for this disorder, affecting academic, social, and emotional functioning in children. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. Dr. Werenberg, what exactly is social anxiety disorder? Social anxiety disorder is a disorder that is physical in its tendency to cause people to blush or quake or stumble on their words and causes them to withdraw from any situation where they are afraid that someone may notice them looking embarrassed or afraid. And it begins to interfere with the development in children of appropriate social skills or academic skills. And in adults, it can interfere with social relationships or work relationships. How does this differ, though, from ordinary shyness? When people are shy, they aren't necessarily going to completely avoid things that make them feel their shyness. Most people, most adults, I should say, with social anxiety, were probably shy children. And there's a strong correlation between shyness and the development of social anxiety. But most shy people develop perfectly fine social skills and social relationships. It's the small group who can't stand the feeling that they get of anxiety that prompts them to pull back from any situation where they feel nervous, and then they start missing out on social opportunities. Was there social anxiety disorder before the drug companies found a medicine that treated it? <laughs> that's what you know. That's what people are thinking. Yeah, out there. yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what, there was, but it was called some different things. It was called sometimes social phobia, and in children we might call it separation anxiety. It might be called school refusal if the social anxiety is leading a child to not want to be in school. So it sometimes was there but called something different. And I think, as in many things in mental health, for sure, when people become aware of a diagnosis, sometimes it gets overdiagnosed for a while as we become more aware of it. I think it was probably, however, not often enough recognized as the cause of a great deal of distress. And now that there's more attention on it, people are realizing they could get help, they don't have to suffer. It sounds like social anxiety disorder is just the extreme end of the spectrum of shyness. Is that accurate? You know, I think that probably is true. If shyness is not handled well, and it's probably biological that you're born with this, it's not something that most people develop as the result of a trauma or something like that. People with social anxiety are born with the genetic likelihood of shyness. And I think you're accurate in saying it's the extreme end of that. What do we know about the neurobiology of social anxiety disorder? Well, it is apparent on looking at particularly PET scans of the brain and fMRI scans. You can see in the 
adult with social anxiety, an enlarged amygdala, very sensitive to signs of incoming danger, if you will. And for people with social anxiety, the danger is that someone may look at them, laugh at them, reject them, humiliate them. And so people with social anxiety are very, very keenly aware of facial expressions, and they tend to over-interpret rejection, over-interpret the likelihood of a person not liking them. So it's a combination of the sensitivity with the process of learning that this is risky, having not been handled effectively. And then there's also the question of extra sensitivity to the feeling of being anxious. Many children feel anxious when they're going to meet new kids or try out for the baseball team. Adults get nervous when they're going to go to a job interview. People with social anxiety feel that much more keenly. It's more aversive, if you will. So an outgoing child may feel anxious, but go ahead anyway because they're focused on the positive. So probably there's some dilemma with the sense of motivation or the feeling of being rewarded, which is more part of the nucleus accumbens, the feeling of reward, that that's not strong enough to overcome this sensitivity to feeling anxious. Is there any role of hormones? I wonder, in children with the onset of puberty, do you see more or less of social anxiety? That doesn't seem so related to social anxiety as it does to the onset of panic, actually. Oh where the hormones are much more connected with panic disorder at puberty for girls and boys alike and then hormones for females throughout the life cycle. It seems that the genetics are more in place for social anxiety earlier in life and are not as triggered. However, life changes with puberty and social things change so you see an increased social risk at that time. Dating academic challenges, social successes all become very much more important to the happiness of the child as they go through puberty and enter all those new social changes. So this is a place where social anxiety could become very debilitating. For those who are just tuning in, welcome to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. We are discussing her book, The Anxious Brain, The Neurobiological Basis of Anxiety Disorders, and How to Effectively Treat Them. Now, Dr. Werenberg, how might a primary care doctor diagnose social anxiety disorder in their practice? Well, I think because social anxiety includes some very obvious physical signs when a person is feeling shy. And bear in mind, the social anxiety is about being exposed as being afraid. So when a person's nervous with social anxiety, they're going to have a lot of peripheral nervous system symptoms, blotchy redness on the neck or on the face, sweating, quavering voices, a feeling of shakiness throughout their limbs. And the doctor will just physically see those changes as the person is talking to them. A lot of averting of the eyes, gazing or looking into the eyes is very disquieting for people with social anxiety. And I think they might also see what's sometimes called white coat anxiety, where the person getting their blood pressure taken, their pulse taken, just has an abnormally high blood pressure or pulse 
in the absence of cardiovascular disease. You know, it's that sudden, oh no, they're looking at me and their pulse goes through the roof. Now, how do we treat social anxiety disorder? Social anxiety disorder is usually handled in psychotherapy, helping a person become less sensitive and carefully examining the areas of life where the person feels the most sensitivity. Many people, by the time they're adults, arrange their lives so that they can work where they don't have to meet a lot of new people, you know, so their work environments are okay. But we want to do skills training to make sure the person has the skills they need to interact socially. Sometimes people are aversive to even things like eating in a restaurant or going into a movie theater or going to a meeting with the school to talk about their child, you know, the normal sort of PTA kind of meeting or the school teacher meeting, and parents will avoid that stuff. So we want to make sure people feel skilled to do what they need to do. And then we work on very gradual exposure so that that amygdala can actually learn, oh, I went out into this environment, I went to a store, and I I handled the transaction with the clerk without blushing or sweating. I guess I can do it. Then the amygdala learns it's safe to find a credit card in front of the clerk or to go to talk to the boss about a change in your schedule without blushing and stammering, then the amygdala is in a setting where it learns, oh, that wasn't so bad. So we do a series of sessions, gradually getting more intense or longer in duration where the person can learn that they're competent. Medications might help with that, but that's much more of a sort of gradual, what we would call graduated exposure practice. It sounds like that social anxiety disorder might be a really wonderful disorder for the use of virtual reality therapy. Actually, it is. And the only dilemma with doing virtual reality therapy for many clinicians is the equipment. But it is, in fact, I think going to be a growing arena of treatment. Also, all of the things that help people calm themselves tools that help a person, biofeedback types of tools, and there are many, many of them on the market, so that a person can learn to sit in a situation like a classroom and calm down before they have to give their class project out loud or wait for a job interview and keeping their body calm. Those tools that teach calming of brain waves and calming of the stress response are very helpful for the person with social anxiety. Would EMDR be a possibility here as well? I use EMDR in my practice quite extensively and use it with social anxiety patients on what's called anticipatory anxiety. We create the scene that they are anticipating being afraid in and then use EMDR in a way that helps desensitize their fear. It's very effective. We might want to explain EMDR. I know for many of us, this happened after we left training. What exactly is EMDR? EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and it's a technique that was sort of serendipitously discovered in 1987 by Francine Shapiro, and she began to, as a research psychologist, really did a lot of research and explored its use. It involves creating a traumatic or anxiety-producing scenario in image and affect, and then through some mechanism, it could be following lights, it could be sound going from ear to ear in headphones, it could be the use of tapping, 
create bilateral rhythmic stimulation of the brain while processing through the frightening imagery. And it has, I won't give the long explanation, but the end result is a desensitizing of the frightened response to the image. Well, thanks so much for being on our show today. I appreciate the opportunity. We've been discussing social anxiety disorder and the anxious brain with our guest today, Dr. Margaret Werenberg. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to our special segment on psychiatry on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Jim King, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians in Leewood, Kansas, and you're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.